0: From Equality, Arizona, you're listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Jean Woodbury. We're back with our first episode of 2023, featuring an interview with Bridget Sharp, the Arizona State Director of the Human Rights Campaign. Bridget and I get to work pretty closely at the Capitol, and so it was fun to talk about how that world can feel when you spend a lot of time there, but also how it could be more accessible. Today is Wednesday, January 18th. And this afternoon, there's a meeting of the Senate Education Committee where they'll be discussing and voting on a pair of anti-LGBTQ bills. We'll have more updates later on our social media feeds and in our newsletter. But if you're interested in following along live, you can join us at the Capitol, or you can watch a live stream on the Arizona Legislature's website. This was a great conversation, and so let's just get it started.
1: So, hi, my name is Bridget Sharp. I use she, her pronouns, and I work for the Human Rights Campaign as the Arizona State Director.
0: Very cool. Mm -hmm. We've gotten to know each other a little bit over the past year working at the Capitol, which has been fun and interesting and challenging. (laughs) I think, you know, the first word I jump to is fun for some reason, which is wrong. It's really not. (laughs) But for whatever reason, that's how I describe it. I get the impression that you've been working at the Capitol quite a bit longer than I have at HRC, right? Or have you... Moved between different jobs.
1: Yeah, so I started with HRC in November of 2019. Um, So that is kind of when I first started. Did some volunteer work for them before, but actually prior to that, oddly enough, I worked in Scottsdale. I was a lobbyist for a trade association. Oh, okay. um, And the association covered small business salons and cosmetologists, barbers, um, nail techs, those kinds of things. So I was in charge of all 50 states. <laughs> which was which was a lot at the time but you know yeah. you just have to be strategic and pick and choose which states you know we wanted to yeah. work in. Were there harmful bills in certain states? Were there good bills we could support? Um, so it was a lot of traveling, which I kind of miss actually, because I got to go a lot of, to a lot of cool places. A lot well, of. different Well, did you capitals.
0: get to go to basically every state? Or... I
1: wish, um, but I got you know I got to visit a lot of state capitals. I spent a lot of time in Austin, Texas, which you know the Texas Legislature is a completely different <laughs> topic of conversation, <laughs> but their Capitol building is really beautiful. So it was kind of nice yeah. to get to hang out there, and
0: it that. is really. Beautiful beautiful yeah actually. I just remembered I have been there it's, it's yeah gorgeous. I love yeah. the
1: dome it's so pretty like yeah. you could just sit there and relax like all day but of course things were crazy so that never happened but <laughs> the thing
0: that immediately stood out to me is this idea of like being based in Scottsdale and working across 50 different state legislatures right and now being based in this national organization mm-hmm. and working in one state legislature right what's that adjustment like for you I mean even just from like a strategy standpoint and from like the relationship standpoint with lawmakers?
1: Yeah. I I mean, I feel like I'm much more impactful (laughs) in one state because, you know, focusing all my energy into Arizona, which, you know, has been my home for a long time. And, you know, I love it here. I I, am loving seeing all the change that's happening in Arizona. But yeah, strategically, I have such better relationships with lawmakers because I can spend more time, you know, in person or just over email. Providing trainings, those kinds of things. So it's the relationships are much stronger versus, you know, at my old job, it was more kind of flying in as needed. And so, right. and that was tough because I am very much somebody who values folks doing the work on the ground. And so it was yeah. hard to kind of come in as this person from a national org.
0: Right. Just saying, like airdrop in and yes. say, this is what cosmetologists need.
1: Exactly. Right. Yeah. When there's already like existing you know, in state trade association, So it's a lot of trust to build. But then mm-hmm. when you have to move on to the next state, you have to like refocus those energies and relationships completely. So I very much prefer working in one state and, and feeling like I know more about what's happening here and not feeling like I need to know what every single legislature
0: yeah. is trying to do. <laughs> It's a lot to keep up with. Yes. <laughs> just with one state. Right. I feel like when I go into a meeting with anyone, but like even, even lawmakers, if I'm going in and just asking them for something or just telling them mm-hmm. facts, I can't tolerate that. It's like the worst feeling to just right. like go to someone who you have no real pre-existing relationship with yes. and say, I need you to think about this this way. I don't right. really know who they are. I don't know what their priorities are. Mm-hmm. If I go into a meeting like that, it just, it just sucks.
1: I agree. Yeah.
0: And I can't really imagine flying around between 50 states. (laughs) And, you know, I know we've got 90 people in our legislature, Mm -hmm. and that's not big compared to Texas (laughs) and some other states. Exactly. So that's... Literally thousands of people that you mm-hmm. might have to interact with.
1: We we also did a little work in Rhode Island where mm. there are like 400 members of, oh my God. of the legislature. It's like half
0: the population of Rhode Island. Yeah,
1: basically like every square mile is like a new legislator oh, okay. in Rhode Island. But um, yeah, I mean it just – it really speaks to like this work and the importance of relationships, right? Like mm-hmm. it speaks to – you know, it's much easier to – pick up the phone and call a legislator's assistant when you know them and you have built that rapport. um, And they you'll likely get in, you know, more likely to than somebody who is just kind of flying in and trying to do work. So I'm with you. Yeah, that's
0: right. I think part of that is why lobbyists get such a bad name. And probably why a lot of people don't sit down and say, I'm going to be a lobbyist when I grow up. Right. (laughs) So how did you get into that earlier lobbying job before this?
1: Yeah, so I I graduated college in 2008, which was, you know...
0: Not a great time to graduate. Not a great
1: time to graduate. Um, originally, well, I graduated with a public relations and advertising degree. Okay. And so, you know... Bad time to graduate again. And I just sort of fell into working for the Arizona Democratic Party as a field organizer in East Mesa of all places. Um, they had the uh, party had an existing organization called the Gem Dems, the Greater Eastern Maricopa Democrats. And so there was a year round office there. So like I kind of just, you know, swooped in and like made friends with the volunteers and ran the office and, and all that good stuff. So I was pretty much hooked after that. I mean, I loved yeah. You know, knowing that we were making a change, making a difference. And like even just talking to people in East Mesa that is, you know, they're usually assumed to be, you know, more conservative. It was great to meet folks who are like, it's great to see this office here and this work that you're doing because they feel at home, you know. And so so that kind of like really got me in and then you know over the next couple years I worked for SEIU which is a labor union um, I worked for um, God, what was it see I'm forgetting already oh repower America which was Al Gore's organization oh, um, cool. yeah so they were trying to pass clean energy legislation yeah. with the hope of at the time Senator McCain supporting it
0: um, was I moved- this during the Obama administration it
1: was yeah okay. so that was all
0: 2009 oh okay yeah. so from graduate graduating to 2009 Mm -hmm. that's that's actually a lot of activity exactly right i see
1: and it's and and i'm sure you have experienced or or heard this before but like people that work on campaigns you work for six months and then it's off to the next thing exactly yeah yeah. and so i really just wanted more stability and so Mm -hmm. ended up taking a job in dc stayed there for a year which is longer but then (laughs) ended up coming back to arizona and then worked for planned parenthood for a bit and then moved to PBA, which was the job in Scottsdale. I see. Yeah. And
0: then that one was a, a longer, more stable. Yeah. About six
1: and a half years, which I is see. yeah. Okay. So that so it was nice to have stability and, you know, the beauty industry people are so passionate about it because it's their livelihood. It's all creative types who are just like really cool and, <laughs> you know, want to make a living yeah. doing
0: and mostly small businesses.
1: Yeah, mostly small businesses. Yeah. So um so it was it was great to just meet people who are, you know, trying to support their families by running their salon or even just working in the salon it was it was a good experience for me i think to just see this side that i haven't
0: seen before so, right yeah something now that we're in this weird economic position of like inflation but decent jobs numbers and people are wondering if there's a new recession coming right something i hear people talk about a lot is how advertising spend is like a bellwether mm. for recessions. It's like the first thing people caught is right. advertising spending. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like with the degree you had, mm-hmm. that's probably like the worst thing to graduate with <laughs> right. right into the recession. Yeah. Do you feel like you get to use the things that you studied and that you were excited about studying in college in this kind of work?
1: Yeah, I, I think that the more the public relations side, you know, I feel like in politics and in lobbying, like like we mentioned, there's a lot of relationship building and, yeah. you know, making sure that people know who you are and that y- they can use you as a resource. Like, that very much is part of it. But honestly, not really <laughs> okay. anything yeah. else. I mean, yeah. the writing portion, definitely. We, you know, wrote press releases all the time and, you know, right. did projects like that. And so I think that writing has really helped because, you know, with any job in a nonprofit, you wear – several hats at once. And so you have to kind of pick up skills as you can. And I love writing. And so that was, that's definitely a big part of my schooling that has
0: just kind of stayed with me. That makes sense. You know, when I talk to people about their careers, and we don't always talk just about careers on the podcast, but I generally tend to think of like, I have this weird circuitous path I took. Most people I talk to don't just like pick a degree, work in that industry for the rest of their lives. But some people do. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always curious, especially for people who are maybe like younger and listening to this and going through college to really get that idea of like, what do you actually take away from college that sticks with you 10 years later, 15 years later?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean, having the degree, you know, is just, I mean, it's a proud moment. It's something Mm -hmm. that, you know, you work for, you know, for four years or however long. And I just had my bachelor's. So that's, you know, a proud moment. And, and, you know, just the experience overall. I mean, I got to work for um, our uh, radio station on campus, which was a blast. Yeah. I mean, we put together like shows on campus, which is what I originally wanted to do. I thought I wanted to work at a record label and like oh, do wow. a, or like work at a music festival. <laughs> yeah. That changed obviously. But yeah, I think I take the experience. It, it was just a great time, like friends that I still have today and will mm-hmm. be lifelong friends. Um yeah, I just I feel like the experience is the biggest part of it and while you're there, experience as much as you can, but also try different things, right? I mean, yeah. you may decide on day 1 like I want to be a nurse. Yeah. And then two years later, you decide that's not the case. That's okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe a little more money, but <laughs> depending. Um, so, so yeah, I think the experience was the biggest yeah. piece. I, of it, it sounds
0: like part of it is the different like connections you can get. Yeah. From exactly. a networking standpoint or just a community standpoint. Yeah. When you made that transition out of college into the Democratic Party, was that because you were already involved in politics and you had connections or was it just? Uh, decision of the moment.
1: Yeah. So I was involved with the Northern Arizona University Young Dems um, for quite a while. Um, My sister, my oldest sister, or older sister, got me involved because we went to school there at the same time. And then when, you know, I was looking for a job, she was also working at the party doing research and those kinds of things. And so she was like, well, we have openings. Like, what do you think? And so that's sort of how I felt it fell into it. And, you know, my sister and I do the same work. We, We were both in politics. So, you know, it was nice to have someone who was like, what do you think about (laughs) this? And then that support also, you know, down the line And you
0: both went to NAU? We did, yes. Okay. Yeah. Are you pretty close in age? Do you, were you there at the same time?
1: Yeah. So she graduated a year before me. Um, okay. So we're 17 months apart. Okay. Um, and so she now works for the DLCC. Um, okay. So that's okay. the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. Yeah. Um, and she lives in New Orleans now. She just moved recently. So oh, that's really cool. Yeah.
0: I feel like that's not a very common thing for siblings to both end up working in politics. Right, yeah. Or really for siblings to both end up working in the same field regardless yes
1: yeah it well and in the same state too right and um, in the same state yeah. yeah she helped um or worked for the party and did uh, redistricting work um while that was happening and taking place in arizona and so it was a lot of like oh you're franny's sister or like you're bridget's sister oh, <laughs> and, yeah. and those uh-huh. kinds of things like people uh, equate us all the time
0: so um yeah, yeah. is that like a family thing Is that like a hereditary you're all in politics kind of thing, or just well, um...
1: I would say, so my dad, who's no longer with us, um he was really into politics all our lives. We grew up outside of Chicago, and so he was really involved in Chicago politics um he was actually on the radio for a long time, and so was around news and like interviewing folks and so it was definitely a passion of his, so I would say. It was kind of ingrained in us, but I think more for my sister, it was more like, this is definitely what she wanted to do more as with me. It was like, well, I guess this works. And I found it to be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. So -hmm. So more of just like a general family environment of interest and conversation and discussion yeah definitely and then later on making the decision to make it your professional life (laughs) exactly exactly
1: so and so you know sometimes you're like man i should have just like stayed a volunteer or something because things are hard right like things get hard during election season you know things get you know messy with primaries and stuff and it can be you know rather exhausting but i think it's been nice to see some of the shifts in arizona the last couple years um And I think we can definitely shift our legislature to a more pro-equality legislature in the next two to four years. And so I think that that kind of keeps me going, too. Like, at the end of the day, I would love to see that happen. And I know a lot of folks in the state, in our community, would love to see that happen, too.
0: Yeah, I think there's something, like, a little bit addicting about it when you can make it your whole life. Right. And you're able to find a job that pays you well enough to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I also sometimes feel like, wouldn't it be nice to just have, like, a job that is outside of the fray, Mm -hmm. but I still get to be supportive in some way? Right. Yeah. And then I realize,
1: I don't know that that's
0: who I actually am.
1: Right. Yeah. And being honest about that, right? Like, I mean, I know for me and maybe for you, too, like, the fray is kind of fun. Right. I mean, you know, it's exciting. And it's, you know, I remember a particular time last year when you and I were sitting in a committee hearing and Mm -hmm. we were approached by a Republican legislator who had Mm -hmm. questions about his bill and actually wanted to change it. Like that was such a surprising moment. It was so great. And it was like, so it it shows you that like, you can't necessarily say, you know, this legislator is this way or this legislator thinks this, you know, you have to be open to, you know, other yeah. other thoughts and other
0: experiences. And if you're not there, mm-hmm. you will miss those opportunities. Exactly. Right. So it's really kind of like uh, the more I push myself into this, I actually do get more results. Right. So let me just keep trying. <laughs> exactly. You know?
1: I'll, I'll keep moving forward then. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, not to mention, you know, just seeing from other organizations at the Capitol and like right. running into folks. Like there's a social component to it, I think, even just yeah. from the relationship building side. So that's kind of a fun part of it too.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I've heard people describe it as, um, well, I can't think of the right word right now that I've heard people use, but it really becomes like a very, very small world once you're there. Right, I agree. <laughs> and I don't think, I don't know if that's totally fair mm-hmm. to everyone else in the state, but it's definitely a situation where it's like, oh yeah, we all know these three reporters who right. are here all the time. We mm-hmm. all know these ten senators who are the most outspoken on things. Right, and everyone kind of knows who everyone is. And it's, um, I don't know if it's insular because I don't know that it's actually hard to get into it, mm-hmm. but it's definitely, it's definitely a small world in a way that feels very much like a social thing.
1: Right, and I and I think sometimes it even gets smaller. You know, when like for our organizations, Mm -hmm. we obviously have goals that we want to achieve every year. Right. So we know we're, you know, almost hyper focused on the LGBTQ issues while also, you know, playing a part in like reproductive rights um, Mm -hmm. in you know, Voting rights and those kinds of things. Yeah. So sometimes you miss what other organizations are doing because you're so hyper-focused yeah. on, okay, I just need to talk to these five senators and I'll be fine. So yeah, you get like laser focused on, <laughs> on your things. And then it's like, oh, all these other <laughs> crazy things are also happening at the legislature. So yeah. yeah.
0: Well, and you've had the experience of having to have a much broader scope, even if it was with one trade group. Mm-hmm. Do you ever wish that that's the kind of work you got to do is like a big picture policy role
1: yeah you know i think that there will be kind of more hope for that in in arizona like the next few years because you know we you know at my old job we never ran legislation we mm-hmm. just sort of reacted to it right so so you know yeah. so that was yeah something that i would have loved to do is you know be the person who's introducing the bill or with a coalition leading the bill. And that's been obviously hard for our groups the last couple of years, but yeah. but already, you know, we've seen interest from legislators who are just sort of on their own accord taking on pro LGBTQ bills. And so it, right. it's yeah. so I feel like you know, our groups have a great opportunity, you know, to even if we even if we know bills aren't going to get committee hearings this year, we can at least educate these folks. And two years down the line, four years down the line, they have a solid understanding of why this is so important. Yeah. So yeah, that's an exciting thing, I think, for sure.
0: That time horizon is interesting in the context of what we talked about before, where it's like you get into a campaign job and six months later you're off to a new thing mm-hmm. but then you still want to think on these two four-year or with something like redistricting mm-hmm. ten-year timelines right but you don't know actually where you're going to be right in one year
1: exactly right
0: when you first got started in politics was that the mindset you had or was it a little bit more just Oh, this is new and exciting and I'm gonna figure it out as I go.
1: It was definitely um new and exciting and figure <laughs> it out as I go. You know, which felt like a challenge, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I, I I feel like I've gotten to really love it and to find a niche that really works. And, you know, there's a certain, you know, kind of understanding that like you pay your dues, you, you know, start, you know, from the bottom, so to speak, and then you work oh, your yeah. way up. And, yeah. you know, so I feel like HRC for me has been like kind of the perfect marriage of doing legislative work, which I love to do. Mm -hmm. Also still working with um, HRC members and advocates, giving them a voice if they don't feel like they have a voice down at the legislature. And then there's also the elections piece of it where, you know, this last year we worked, you know, nine months of the year on the election. then it was like, okay, Mm -hmm. November's here. Well, December, because a lot, wasn't figured out in arizona until then um yeah but and then you get a little break and then it's just straight on into you know legislative session that's right and so so it's like it's a good kind of hectic i think where you know what to expect and you can also you know do that long-term work and know okay so and so won their election they're going to be a great ally or champion for us again this year but there's so many new legislators this year like i haven't even you know i feel like started to get to know you know even all of them and so yeah yeah so I think it's yeah you there's so many factors that you know you plan for two years out and you never know what's going to happen in two years right people get reelected or not or I think
0: I'm just still hung up on like what I'm realizing now having this conversation with you Mm -hmm. is I'm constantly going around and having conversations that are like oh there's all these new legislators and it's like it's 90 people that we're trying to keep track of Mm -hmm. people outside of our little bubble aren't aware that some years there aren't as many new legislators as other years, right? Right, Mm -hmm. And so having that kind of conversation is like, okay, well, you started out working with the Democrats in 2008, and now you're at a point where you're having a conversation that's like, oh, here's this new person from this district, and here's this new person from this district. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of people who are in that mindset, but there's also a lot of people who just don't think about politics that way Mm -hmm. at all. right? And I think even people who want to get into politics – aren't really necessarily aware that that's kind of how it starts to feel mm-hmm. after a certain point. It's hard to come up with a great question for that, <laughs> but I think I maybe want to just roll the clock back a little bit. Sure. You went to school in NAU, then you moved to Mesa for work. Mm-hmm. That's a big shift. Mm-hmm. Were you in Arizona before and were you in Northern Arizona before that, or were you used to like the, the metro area of Phoenix?
1: Yeah. So I, we moved, my family moved to Arizona in 97, I think, okay. 1997. And so I did middle school and high school in North Phoenix. Okay, And so, yes, very familiar with it. Um, and then, you know, just wanted to kind of get out of town <laughs> and, yeah. you know, go to a smaller campus. So, you know, Flagstaff made the most sense. So yeah, but I love, I love Phoenix. It's mm-hmm. amazing to see how it's grown, you know, even just from, school to now and you know i knew i always wanted to live in like downtown or uptown phoenix and that's where i am right now and it's just you know i feel like sometimes phoenix gets a bad rap or you know people aren't excited about it but like i think it's such a vibrant community and i think it's you know i just i think it's a great place to live
0: when you say phoenix gets a bad rap do you mean like phoenix phoenix or like the metro area phoenix
1: i guess well i guess the metro area more and you know there's tough parts about Living in the metro area, you have mm-hmm. to drive everywhere. Um, if yeah. you don't live on the light rail line or the future light rail line yeah. or bus lines. And so, you know, I think it gets a bad rap in that way. We're, we're Phoenix is the fifth largest city, I think, in the country.
0: Something like that. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so, you know, it's, I, I just think people think, well, we should have more public transportation. I also think that, <laughs> that that would be great. I think it's the sprawl that intimidates people a little bit.
0: Yeah. The sprawl. And I mean, you said you grew up in North Phoenix. Well, not really grew up in North Phoenix, but you did middle school, high school in North Phoenix. You worked in East Mesa. Mm -hmm. That's very far apart. Mm -hmm. And North Phoenix, I think North Phoenix in the 90s versus what North Phoenix is now. For one, I think it just is farther north. Yes. Have you seen that change? Like, how is that? now that you're, you know, living in Phoenix again, mm-hmm. does it mm-hmm. feel more sprawling or more manageable? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I, I would say, and actually the first week that we moved here from Chicago,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we were driving down Tatum Boulevard off the 101. I don't think the 101 was there yet. It was just a dirt road. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like my, it wouldn't
0: have been. <laughs> right.
1: Like my, my dad was just driving us in our van, like down this dirt road to like go see you know our house that was being built and it was just like where have you taken me and <laughs> what is happening but now you know desert ridges he i used to work there in high school actually okay. um and so i mean it just grow has grown so fast and yeah i think you know to say something good about the sprawl is people find neighborhoods that they really like and that they can yeah. you know live in and feel comfortable in um Yeah, there's a lot of, I think, diversity there and where specifically you want to live, East Valley, West Valley. So I think that's, you know, provided folks with, you know, good, good communities.
0: That's something I've seen is every now and then I'll learn about a really interesting community area in Glendale Mm -hmm. or North Phoenix or Gilbert or something that I've just never even been aware of as like, oh, wow, that's a really vibrant, like walkable city area kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And I think part of the thing that happens with the sprawl is it's not necessarily, like, impossible to have that, but you might not even be aware of what other communities exist. Right. Unless you're really actively looking for it. That's true. Have you experienced that in terms of maybe trying to find community, but also maybe in terms of, like, organizing queer people? Because I think it can be really hard to find, like, what do I do in the East Valley if I'm queer? Or right? what, do I f- what if I'm in Glendale? What do I do? Where do I go? That's so true.
1: And, you know, I think my first, like, almost introduction into the community was just going to gay bars, to be honest, in my 20s. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, hanging out with, you know, a, a couple of friends in particular that, you know, would frequent the bars off of, mm-hmm. you know, 7th Avenue in Melrose. And that was my first introduction to, like, drag queens and the drag queen community mm-hmm. and just how vibrant and wonderful mm-hmm. it was. And so... You end up meeting a lot of people, you know, because that's obviously downtown or uptown Phoenix. So you meet a lot of people who come in from Glendale to like go to these bars or, right, you know, right. come from the West Valley to, to go to these bars and, and find community. But it, it is tough, I would say, outside of that, because, you know, where where do you look? Right. I mean, right. And, and also where do you look without like infiltrating someone's safe space, too? Well, you that's know, that's true.
0: Yeah. You know, I because, mean, sometimes I talk to someone and I find out, oh, they have. They just do have a really thriving and vibrant queer community in the pocket of the metro area that they live in. Right. And no one would know. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the flip side of it.
1: Right, right. And even if, you know, sometimes you'll tell people from, you know, different parts of, of um, the metro area, like, oh, yeah, well, Melrose is... I guess you could call it the gayborhood, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of queer old businesses, you know, down there, and they're surprised. They're like, I didn't even know that Phoenix had a gayborhood. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah. everyone's learning, I think. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it, they're tough to find sometimes. But, But I feel like through my, you know, work with HRC, we have connected with a lot of families, either who are queer themselves or have queer children or trans children that will come from Scottsdale and they'll come from Tucson or even, you know, further south of Tucson. And they just sort of find a post one day, like an HRC post or an Equality Arizona post. And then you get an email like, what can I do about this? I think that's the most exciting part. You know, I wish that, you know, there were like five of me and five of my uh, staffer <laughs> in the in the state, uh, b- yeah. Jacob, um, because, you know, you get to spend more time in those communities, you know? So, right. yeah.
0: Well, so that's something I, I think I want to ask about is working with families, mm-hmm. especially the past few years, maybe even just the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's gotten scarier and scarier for families, mm-hmm. even if some of the worst policies haven't actually come to pass. Right. And for families who you work with, they're probably more likely to be really focused on that. Mm -hmm. And I think that can have a really big emotional toll. Yes. What are you seeing in terms of that?
1: Yes, I completely agree with you. You know, the emotional side of it has been both almost the most rewarding and the most scary, right? Because you connect with people on a very real level. Like Mm -hmm. you can't do this work without getting really invested in the families that you're doing the work for, right? I mean, because You know, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do each day is protect, help protect this person's child from, you know, from harm, um, from getting bullied at school, from, you know, legislation that is ridiculous and unnecessary. (laughs) So I think it's been both really hard, but also really rewarding because, you know, I feel like we have a lot of these moms, like we have this, you know, kinship now where, you know, we sort of both know where we stand with each other. There's a big relationship part of that, a trust part of that for sure that I really value and take to heart. And I also think that, you know, I have some expertise where I can help and say... someone wants to get involved, I can say, well, hey, let's set up a meeting with Senator so-and-so on this day, and let's start you off in that direction, right? And so, you know, but then they have the lived experience that they're open and willing to share. Mm -hmm. I mean, really with the whole state, because if you, you know, get up and testify in front of a committee, that's going out live, and anyone can watch it. And it's public
0: record. The videos are there forever.
1: Exactly. And so, you know, that's been a challenging part of it, because you really want to, make sure everybody feels comfortable, right? Like right. like I don't I, – you know, I, I try and stay away from, you know, us as an organization like banking stories in some way, you know, because, you know, you, you want to make sure that if you have someone's story, you take really good care of it mm-hmm. and also – don't sort of just use, use it at your
0: disposal. You well, know? can you explain what that means by sure. banking stories? Sure.
1: So, so um, you know, let's say you have an advocate that really wants to get involved on a particular mm-hmm. bill. Um, you know, banking stories really means, like, let's say you do, um, like, a professional for a video shoot with them where they talk about their story, they talk yeah. about their, their child, their faces, you know, on video. Yeah. I mean, there's implications there. And so, right. so we try to you know, each year, you know, we don't try to repurpose things, I guess is what I'm trying to say, because we want to make sure that families still feel comfortable. Like maybe you get a great interview and then the next year it's going to be helpful for media. The first thing you do is go back to that family and say, would you be okay with us using this for this purpose? And so, so I guess it's, well, I guess it is kind of story banking, but it's, um, you know, making sure all along the way that everyone feels comfortable and protected.
0: Well, and I would imagine, and it sounds like this is kind of what you're saying, part of the reality is that for families with kids, a year in a kid's life is actually a huge change. Right. A year in the legislature can also be (laughs) uh, just a totally new reality, right? right? And so maybe that's a great story. Maybe they're comfortable with it being out there, Mm -hmm. but it's not genuine to the relationship you have with that family right? if you – keep them kind of kind of like set in stone right. in that one moment in their life.
1: Exactly, right. And it's not fair to them, to them either, right. you know. And, you know, you may have, you know, a kid that, you know, one year is super happy with testifying at a committee hearing and feels mm-hmm. comfortable to do it and wants to do it. And then the next year they're like, I'm burnt out and I don't want to do this anymore. That's totally fine, you right. know. I mean, you know, they – I hope at the end of the day, you know, while working with this families, that they feel the most important thing to me is that they feel seen and heard yeah. and, and protected and, you know, n- not taking for granted this person's whole life that they're really putting yeah. out in front of a lot of people. So
0: yeah. I find that with a lot of parents who get involved, um, often the people I've worked with, they have adults children Mm -hmm. or young adult children and now they've decided to get involved maybe their kid came out in college or something and that's why Mm -hmm. or maybe they just waited Mm -hmm. working with families who have young kids who are out and they're all involved it's different because the kid is is in a more precarious position Mm -hmm. i think if you're off in college and your parents decide to be advocates Mm -hmm. around your identity. You might have some feelings about it, but it's not really going to be disruptive to your life necessarily. Sure, sure. And I think disruptive is like an unfair word, maybe. But I do imagine that working with families and feeling like everyone's voice is heard Mm -hmm. can be pretty challenging, even in a family where everyone's like super on board and happy. Mm -hmm. Do you have any experience navigating that balance of the kids and the parents?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say... You know, the biggest thing that I've seen and, you know, I think a lot of times and you've seen this in the media, we've all seen this where, Mm -hmm. you know, it's assumed that the parent is forcing their kid into doing (laughs) this, you know, I mean, that is if I could say anything, that's like the one biggest misrepresentation out there. Right. I mean, because, you know, along with the great relationship I have, you know, with the parents, like the child becomes a part of this process as well because a lot of the times it has to do with them and so you know I think navigating it is always you know kind of going back to those tenets of making sure they're protected and safe um, but also making sure they they feel hurt too right I mean you know I've a few more than once you know gotten testimony from you know a 14 year old advocate who says can you just look at this for me and let Mm -hmm. me know if this is okay and you know tweak things here and there but like their voice coming through I think is the most important part and that's not even something that you know I feel like has to like go through mom and dad right because that or or whoever (laughs) whoever the parent or guardian is you know because that relationship also exists between me and them and you know trust exists there too so that you know folks know oh yeah email Bridget and she'll let you know what you know you should say or not say or you know really focus on so I think I I definitely see I don't see it as a whole one relationship it's very kind of separate almost yeah
0: that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah and I mean I was involved in some activism as a teen and so when I see people who were like the age I was like 15 year olds Mm -hmm. coming in to testify one I wasn't testifying as a 15 year old right so that's (laughs) pretty impressive but Mm -hmm. beyond that I realized like yeah my parents weren't Part of that. Right. And for some of those kids coming in, I think they are just going in on their own. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, it's a very different experience. And it's something I try to
1: mm-hmm. wrap my
0: head around, like what that must be like right. to include your parents in it. My parents are fortunately supportive, but also just like, if you're a kid, it's kind of mortifying yes. to have your parents <laughs> yeah, you're around. Like, oh. right. <laughs> and that's, um, it's just a lot. This the whole thing of just, okay, you have these kids who are in this precarious position. So you're looking for support, Mm -hmm. you build this network. But maybe now it's a network that's based on parental support needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's great. And that's important. But then are the kids having an active voice too? Mm -hmm. Or are the kids finding the community they need?
1: Right, right. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I can't think of an example or of any parent who hasn't like allowed them to say, to speak their piece, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, to be- No, I can't either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think that that also speaks to the misconception of, oh, the parents are making their kids (laughs) do this. Like the the best part of last session for me was there was a hearing in the Senate and we packed the room and Mm -hmm. just seeing everyone step back from the podium and getting a high five from a community member, a (laughs) hug from a community member, seeing the whole back wall, you know, full of folks who are like- This is so important to me. I am here when I could be at work. I could be at school. And, you know, this yeah. is how important it is. And, you know, we had some tough battles last year. But, like, that is what keeps me going is just seeing that and knowing that, like, we all have our, each other's backs. And, yeah. you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're doing the right thing and are on the right side of history.
0: It's something community can really coalesce around. Mm-hmm. Here's the seed of this thing we're all focused on. Right. And now here's all these relationships that form around it.
1: Right, right. And it's been interesting to see. Um, so we're part of a, a coalition of mm-hmm. um, organizations that have basically something to do with the LGBTQ community, policy focused and, you know, yeah. mostly legislative focus. But we have a group of high schoolers who have recently become a part of it. And, you know, we had a meeting right before the holidays and they spoke up so much. And I was so happy. Yeah. And just hearing all their ideas about Things that we're used to, like lobby day. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, every year we're like, oh, we'll have lobby day, and, you know, we do X, Y, and Z (laughs) to do lobby day. Right.
0: Here's the checklist. Exactly. But
1: they, I feel like, input some really great ideas Mm -hmm. that all of us in the room, all the adults in the room were like, oh, yeah, like that makes total sense. And so, so it's so cool to see this younger generation, you know, coming on their own accord, right? Like, I mean, their parents might have dropped them off, I don't know, but you know, it was just them three that came to this meeting on a Saturday evening, you know, when they could be out hanging out, doing literally anything else and they care that much. So I'm excited to see how that relationship grows too.
0: I feel like young LGBT people are in general just really activated Mm -hmm. around these issues. Maybe for obvious reasons, Mm -hmm. but I think there's reasons for anyone to be really activated politically. And in general, people aren't. Right. So it is really notable to mm-hmm. see people in that demographic.
1: And how immediately proud they are to be who they are. Yeah. Right. Whereas I think in maybe our generations or generations before us, it you had to be careful, right, for safety reasons. Or mm-hmm. you had you had to do things behind the scenes. Or you had your community, but it wasn't so yeah. public, you know. And
0: so what was your experience like around that? around
1: like finding community or yeah
0: around finding community and did it feel like there was the opportunity to do the kinds of things that these kids are doing
1: yeah I mean I would say I mean I and I didn't for me personally didn't come out to a little bit later in mm-hmm. life and so I wasn't necessarily looking for that but but looking yeah. for communities in other ways like doing young young democrat stuff and you know yeah. so I think it kind of you know still stands at this in the same way but I you know I just think that it's just nice to see them doing this you know really without is, fear yeah. and without you know and and bringing in these new ideas like you know we're used to you know sending out an action alert or you know to our members <sighs> right. or you know sending a tweet and those things and and for a while that was like the new thing like activating legislators well, on true. twitter yeah. you know yeah. and then and now it's it's tiktok and people are getting involved that way i mean these kids are like communicate they're not texting each other they're like Sending messages (laughs) in Snapchat, on TikTok, and all of that, and so I think it's a different world, and in some ways a safer world because you're you can see into you know via your phone into the worlds of other kids who feel the exact same way as you, you know. Whereas I know my generation, it was like a lot of like Live Journal (laughs) and like MySpace (laughs) and those kinds of things, so it was harder to find you know your your community. But
0: um, my high school experience was like during the whole Arab Spring, Occupy Wall oh, Street sure. period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that was like the moment for, oh, Facebook and Twitter are going to change the world right. for political organizing. <laughs> and it lasts for like like a year right. or like two years. Right. And I don't even think that's really what's happening for these kids either, that it's like about social media. Mm-hmm. But on some level, they're able to see this bigger picture of like how you can think about things and how you can talk about things.
1: Right. Exactly and be unapologetic about yourself and, you know, and who you are. I think that that's, I just think that's so wonderful because I I feel like kids when they're supported and they have affirming homes, parents, Mm -hmm. friends, teachers, that all that happens is that you thrive, right? I mean, you find out who you are. Someone tells you it's okay to be who you are. And I think kids are finding that out earlier in their lives because, you know, they have that support from community. And so, you know, that's why it's hard to see these anti-trans bills, specifically like bathroom bills and, you know, the anti-trans sports bill that just targets kids who want to be seen and heard and felt like they are a person and that it's okay to be right. who they are. And well, so- and that
0: it's okay to be uncertain about who you are, mm-hmm. right? That it's okay to like explore things and try things out.
1: Right, exactly.
0: I feel like some of it just has to do with access to information. hmm it's a lot easier to find nuanced conversations about being queer on the internet than it was 10 years ago. That's true. That's very true. Uh, And 20 years ago, I don't know. It wasn't that easy to find. Like there were great online communities for trans people, even Mm -hmm. specifically, but it was just less discoverable Mm -hmm. and it was smaller and therefore more niche, right? And it only represented some experiences. Mm-hmm. And there'd be a lot of toxic arguments about whose experience was the one true valid experience, right?
1: Right. Yeah. And
0: I think a lot of that is just always going to exist. Mm-hmm. But there is space for people to go on TikTok and say, I actually just love the word genderqueer. Mm-hmm. And it's like a whole throwback all of a sudden. Right. It's, <laughs> it's fantastic that people just have more viewpoints and more information and are able to just say, right, I don't have to fit into a mold, mm-hmm. but here's all these different experiences I, I can know about.
1: Right. And our, our community is so layered, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. I think when, you know, started talking about gay rights, marriage was the big issue and, and all that. And you yeah. only sort of thought of lesbian couples or gay couples when you talk about marriage you you know you don't really think about the layers from there you know and so I think it's been really nice to see those layers a little bit more and that you know you have people who find along the way that maybe they come out as gay but then later in life you know are trans or they
0: right they find more words to express something that's that's truer to their experience exactly
1: and so you know I just think that's, that's so great to see is it, mm-hmm. that it's a journey. I mean, all of us are going to be on this journey for our whole lives. Like things change all the time, you know, people change all the time. Yeah. And I think that the, like the pillar is just staying true to yourself and, and having affirming people around you and taking care of those people. Yeah. Um, Cause it would be hard to, to feel sad if you have all that support around you. So, yeah, yeah. that's
0: true. Well, I think that'd be the best place to end, but I want to ask one more question. (laughs) Because you mentioned just transitioning past like the marriage moment Mm -hmm. in in gay politics Mm -hmm. and how so much of the conversation was around like a gay couple or a lesbian couple Mm -hmm. and talking about the fact that the community is so much more diverse and has so many more experiences in it. I feel like that's the direction to go in terms of new organizing strategies is Mm -hmm. where are people who were left out of the conversation before Mm -hmm. what are you seeing in terms of the shift from that era of politics to this era of politics
1: yeah I mean a lot more inclusion uh, Mm -hmm. a lot more awareness that intersectionality if we're not doing this with an inner through an intersectional lens like we will fail right I mean we have you know going back to you know, Marsha P. Johnson and, you know, going back to, you know, gay rights back then, you know, that was someone who just wanted to be seen for who she was. Right. And even in that movement, a lot of folks were like, you'll have your turn. And that drives me crazy. She
0: got booed (laughs) off of a stage. Exactly. And and
1: yes, exactly. Sylvia Rivera as well. And so it's just, you know, it, it, you feel cringy a little to know that that was the case. And we've see, you see it in movements all the time, the feminist movement and reproductive rights. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think there's more of an accepting tone of we have to look through this through the lens of race through the lens of class community everything um because of that the layers right because of the layers in our community and so it has been really nice to have conversations even with colleagues or with um other organizations where immediately the tone is set from the beginning that like this is going to be an intersectional conversation and that if someone if a group does feel left out Let's remedy this to make sure that seats are had at the table, and you know it can be tough sometimes um, right. when a lot of folks come together. Everyone has different priorities. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we we experience this all the time, and so, yeah, of course. Um, so you know, being very careful with how we are working on things, and just always coming back to, are we looking at this intersectionally? what communities are really struggling in this way and how can we bring light to that if, again, if that community is feeling comfortable with that because a, a lot of the shift, I think, is just more acceptance and more and mm-hmm. showing these are, you know, our communities and, you know, they have lots of layers, but at the same time, like, we're just trying to survive like, like everybody else. And right. and I, you know, I think there's just been more public acceptance, but a part of that is, more visibility into our worlds right and, and into what it's like because you know none of these legislators who have introduced anti-drag bills have never ne- been to a drag show in their life have never heard <laughs> you know been to a drag story hour ever and seen the positivity and the affirmation that happens there and so you know it's re- that's the hardest part is seeing folks who have no idea no insight into right. who we are or even attempting to um making these these rules. And so I feel like it's, you know, sort of our responsibility to even to bring light and yeah. show that we're just
0: like everybody
1: else and we, you know, just want to survive and, and thrive like well,
0: everybody else. And that connects perfectly to what we were talking about earlier with the fact that it's like 90 people. Mm-hmm. Like they represent us because we voted for them. right? But they're not actually representative because they, they can't be because they're a tiny group of people. Right. And all the people who work there all add up to – such a tiny percentage of the population Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and being able to connect with all of these other experiences and stories is so important because of course, there's going to be people who don't understand drag. Right. And if it's one person who's in the legislature who doesn't understand drag, it (laughs) feels like it's a much bigger thing, Mm
1: -hmm. but it is
0: just one person. It really is. It is just a small group of people. Right.
1: A small group of people who saw one news story out of Texas you know where a child was at a drag show and then that is imprinted on them as something that is wrong and they yeah. make policy decisions based off of that i think that is i think it's wrong i think it's a little immoral to do things that way mm-hmm.
0: um but that context it, is really important
1: right right i mean they you know they may get two phone calls from constituents in their districts who saw the same you know, Peace in Texas, who said, Mm -hmm. do something about this. And if they feel inclined, they have the power to do something about it, even if two people in their district said, I think
0: this is an issue. So, yeah. So good reason to get more voices in the policy process. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, thanks for talking with me today. Of course. Um, And all of the other times we talk. (laughs) Yes.
1: Oh, my gosh. I love working with you. I'm excited for just the work we're going to continue doing. And I'm, Yeah.
0: yeah. Me We're too. Gonna, yeah, great. Some room for optimism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>